Last night, I uh, had a speaking engagement for a pregnancy center right at the Alabama-Tennessee border, and uh, God blessed in a, in a wonderful way, uh, but I didn't get into bed to about 3 a.m., so uh, I hope I'm, uh, I'm clear this morning and uh, don't sound too disoriented, uh, but we uh, do continue our study, uh, this marvelous study in the uh, book of, uh, of Philippians. I hope you picked up a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you were coming in, and uh, as we continue our study, uh, let's just briefly remind ourselves of uh, what the Philippian church was up against. Uh, first, uh, severe persecution uh, by the Roman Empire. Uh, you remember from our introduction to the book of Philippians, although it was a Greek city, uh, they had been granted citizenship by the Romans, which was the greatest privilege that could be awarded anybody in that, in that day. And that happened after the Battle of Philippi, when Octavian, who also was known as Caesar Augustus, uh, defeated uh, the forces of Cassius and Brutus of the Senate, which in effect ended the 500-year republic rule in the Roman Empire and established the, C the Caesars, the emperors, and their military might as uh, dictators. And as a result of that victory, he uh, granted them citizenship. And my, the point being, uh, Roman pride ran as deep in Philippi as anywhere in the Roman Empire. Uh, we know from history that uh, Philippi literally was a miniature Rome in terms of their agri uh, 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 architecture, in terms of their customs, their, their clothing, their traditions. And Philippi, and this is very relevant to the church of Philippi, it literally, literally was the seedbed for what was known as the emperor cult, uh, where they believed that Caesar was God himself. They actually called Caesar the son of God, and they worshipped him as Lord. And because of the uh, Christians' refusal to acknowledge Caesar as deity, and that Jesus was, alone was deity and their Lord, uh, that put them in direct conflict with the Roman Empire, which brought tremendous uh, persecution. At the time of uh, Paul writing the book of Philippians, uh, the emperor Nero uh, was on the throne. And uh, you know Nero uh, had a great hatred uh, for Christians and their, and their faith. But they were not only up against persecution, uh, they were having a ten tremendous battle with false teachers who were attempting to infiltrate the church, especially the Judaizers who were trying to add f uh, works uh, to faith trying to tell these uh, Gentile believers that they also had to embrace Judaism. Uh, they had to uh, obey the law uh, before they could be uh, truly saved and converted. So it was a total distortion uh, of the uh, gospel, and they were making inroads in the church. And then on top of all of that, uh, there was in, uh, tremendous internal conflict within the church that threatened uh, to really splinter the church and render them ineffective in advancing the gospel. So what Paul does as he closes the book out, he exhorts the church in light of those three things to stand firm. To stand firm in their faithfulness to Christ, to stand firm in advancing the gospel, 
and he shares seven ways in which to stand firm. Now, we've already looked in previous messages at the first three ways. Uh, First, he said to stand firm through harmony in the church. Bottom line, the message was, united we stand, but divided we what? We fall. Uh, Paul realized they could never stand up against the persecution and the threat of the false teachers as a divided church, that they had to come together united uh, in a harmonious relationship with one another, with that one mind, one purpose, to glorify God and to advance uh, the gospel. Uh, The second thing was to stand firm through the joy of the Lord, uh, that in light of what they were going through, the, the difficulties, the adversity, the pain, he was trying to tell them, you're not going to find joy in circumstances on this side of eternity. The only place to find joy is in your relationship with Christ. And God wants to bring you to a place where you know a joy in that relationship that is uh, greater than the pain and the adversity of your present circumstances. And then last week, uh, we looked at the truth that they're to stand firm through graciousness towards others, and especially as applied to those who are opposing them. In other words, how were they to respond to those that were persecuting them, uh, that were hurting them, putting them in prison, uh, threatening to execute them? And he said, you're to show them the graciousness of Jesus. Like Jesus, you're not to try to take revenge. You're not try to utter threats or insults or retaliate. uh, But you're to express the unconditional love of Jesus. And use the adversity, use that as an opportunity to extend his presence and to express his character. Now this morning, as you see in your notes, we come to the fourth way to stand firm, and that is to stand firm through God's peace. They were in desperate need of peace in light of the storm that they were in. And they would find that peace in prayer, uh, which we're going to see, of course, is the antidote uh, to worry. So, uh, so please uh, take your Bibles and uh, open them to Philippians chapter 4, and let's read these two verses uh, as we uh, begin. Uh, Very familiar verses, very uh, well-known. Be anxious for nothing. In other words, don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And what will be the result and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So notice how Paul begins verse 6 by simply saying what? Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. Now, let's be honest. Your first response to that statement probably is, really, Paul? I mean, really? Do you really believe that a person can live free of worry? Well, here in this passage, he tells us how to. Now, remember, this was written by a man who had deep, deep concerns for the church at Philippi, as we just mentioned, that was experiencing both external opposition and internal conflict. At the same time, uh, we know that the church in Rome was divided, and even many of the church leaders there in Rome were attacking Paul, as we saw in chapter 1 of this study, and oh yeah, uh, don't forget, Paul had been in prison for how many years? Four years, and he's still in prison at the time that he wrote this book. 
He's awaiting trial. He doesn't know if he's going to be released or executed. And who is he going to have to stand trial before? Nero, the emperor. Again, who was not a friend to Christianity. And in all of that, Paul learned the secret to conquer worry. And here in these two verses, he shares his secret with us. So please follow in your notes, and let's begin. Now, the, the first part of this message is not going to be very pleasant. Uh, we're going to have to really define worry, sort of expose it in our lives for what it is, because most of us, we sort of minimize worry. We've lived with it for so long, it's become such a part of us, uh, we tend to, tend to excuse ourselves and minimize it and not see it for what it is, sin. And that there is an antidote, as we're going to see, where God can give us victory. So defining worry, and look at those first three points. First, the Greek word for anxiety or worry is merimneo, and it literally means to be pulled in different directions. Faith in God pulls me in one direction, while fear of circumstances pull me in the opposite direction. And then as a result, what? I'm just literally pulled apart, wavering uh, between the two. Now, here's reality. Here's reality. We are going to be continually faced in life. I'll put a positive spin to it. With wonderful opportunities, brilliantly disguised by God as impossible situations. That's the truth for all of us. And that's looking at it in a positive light. Now, why does God do that? He does that so that, number one, He will get the glory alone, so that when it's all over, there'll be no explanation other than what? Not that we did it, but God did it. But He also does it to what? Test and strengthen our faith. Therefore, when I come up against difficult circumstances, I have a, I have a choice. I, I have to weigh, on one hand, the the, what seems to be the impossibility of my circumstances. And I weigh that over against, on this side, the impossibility of God to break His Word, the impossibility of God to break His promise. And we tend to waver, don't we? And we sort of get pulled in both directions. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 14. Here's a great example of this. Great example of this being pulled in two different directions. And then if you don't make the right choice, eventually you're going to cave in to worry. Matthew chapter 14. Let me begin reading at verse 22. And with very little commentary, just because of the, our time limitations, and we have so much more to cover. But uh, Matthew 14, verse 22. And immediately, He, Jesus, made the disciples get in to the boat, and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. This was right after the feeding of the 5,000. So they had just witnessed this incredible miracle of Christ. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountains by himself to pray. And it was, when it was evening, he, he was there alone. But the boat was already many uh, steady away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, that would be between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning, and they're in the middle of a lake, total darkness in this tremendous storm. Uh, it says, 
He came to them. Jesus came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out of fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he, Jesus, said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Beautiful illustration of worry, being pulled in two different directions. See, Peter steps out of the boat, begins to walk on the water. So what does he start doing? There's Jesus, there's the waves. You know, he's getting pulled, and then all of a sudden, what? He took his eyes off of Jesus, put them on the waves, and what happened? He sank. And that's exactly what happens to us. That's how anxiety, that's how worry works. On one hand, we're pulled towards faith in God as believers. On the other hand, we're pulled by the fear of our circumstances. And then inevitably, there comes a point you have to make a choice. Am I going to keep my focus on my circumstances and succumb to worry? Or am I going to put my trust in God and follow Him? Look at the second thing as we continue, the second truth as we continue to define worry. The old English root for, for the word worry, uh, from which we get our word worry, means literally, you'll love this, to strangle. That's what it literally means, to strangle. When worry grips me, it creates a feeling, and, you, and we've all experienced it, a feeling of being trapped. You ever been there? And oppressed. And it literally chokes the spiritual life out of me. That's why worry, anxiety is so debilitating, so crippling, so devastating for a believer. Because it literally, when it grabs you, traps you, oppresses you, it will literally choke the spiritual life out of you. Turn over to uh, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus talked about this in uh, the uh, parable of the uh, sower. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, look at verses uh, um, 18 and 19. He says, and others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and what? Choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. See, that's what worry does. It strangles the spiritual life out of you. You're, you're, you're in this battle. Is it gonna, am I going to place my faith in God or am I going to fear my circumstances and I'm torn? And then if I give in to that worry, boy, it will get its hands on me and it will literally choke the spiritual life out of me. It will literally kill joy. It will kill peace. It will kill trust in God. And then look at the third truth as we define worry. And this is very important to see. The real problem of worry, the real problem, is not in circumstances, people, or things, but is inside me. That's where the real problem is. 
It's not out there in circumstances or people or things, but the problem is inside me. Look at that next statement. Worry results from wrong thinking about God and wrong feelings about circumstances. That's what is at the heart of worry. We worry because we don't know God. I'm talking about really knowing. We may know a lot intellectually, but do we know and trust that in our hearts? Hosea said, my people are destroyed for what? Lack of knowledge of God. And that's what's at the heart of worry. The problem's not outside of me, it's inside me. And my, my view is distorted of God. If I really believed God was too good to do anything cruel, if I really believed God was too wise to make a mistake, if I really believed it's the nail-scarred hands of Jesus is shaping my circumstances, causing all things to work for my good, I would be free of worry and fear because I could rest in Him. Look at James chapter 1. James talks about the problem, the real problem is our fractured thinking about God. Let me just begin reading at verse 2. James chapter 1, uh, and we'll read uh, from verse 2 through verse 8. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. In other words, don't get worried. Don't get anxious. Don't fall underneath the weight of the load. No, you, you count it joy. You throw a celebration. And it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to feel giddy and feel very joyful. That word count, as many of you know, is an accountant's term. He says you're, 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 to, you're to consider it joy knowing that the end result will be something good. And that's what he says in verse 3. Knowing, here's why you count it joy, although it is painful and it's not pleasant. Knowing that the testing of your faith, it produces something. It produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what God is after. He's maturing you. He's taking you through some spiritual discipline, some spiritual conditioning. Just like an athlete. We just witnessed the Olympics. And those athletes, you know, we, we, we see them in these amazing races and winning these medals. And we don't really appreciate that for years and years and years, the work they put into that, the conditioning, the pain. And that's what God does to us as believers, to strengthen our faith, to produce endurance. He takes us through spiritual discipline. He takes us through spiritual conditioning. So, Paul, so James says, hey, when trials hit, when difficulties hit, count it joy, knowing that God's producing endurance in your life. He's just after bringing maturity to bring you into a... Uh, deeper walk with him. And then look at verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, you know, as you, as you face your circumstances, and, and, and we do lack wisdom, you hit, the, you hit those times of perplexity and you don't know whether to continue to go forward, whether you're to retreat, you know, jump to the right, jump to the left, you know, bunker down. He says, and if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But notice verse 6. This is a synonym for worry, anxiety. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Think of the illustration we just looked at with Peter. For let not that man expect he will receive anything from the Lord, being a, there, here it is, double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. 
See, double-mindedness is just a synonym for worry and anxiety. It's when you're being pulled in two different directions and you're wavering in the middle. You're just straddling the fence. And Paul says, or James says, that man can't receive anything from God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You have to, at some point, take your eyes off the circumstances and place them on God and trust Him and honor Him through that, through that uh, trust. Now, let's continue on in your notes. What are the telltale signs of worry? Uh, what, are, what am I going to notice in my life if, uh, if I'm struggling with worry and anxiety? Number one, focusing on tomorrow's uncertainties and that's what a worrier does. You're focusing on what might or might not happen in given circumstances or you confront a particular problem. So focusing on tomorrow's uncertainties creates an inability to complete today's responsibilities. In other words, you're so pulled apart, you're so distracted, you can't really focus on today and your present responsibilities. Now you may get, you may get through it, but you're really distracted. There's no quality. There's no enjoyment in it because it all becomes a burden. It all becomes a chore because you're so focused on what might or might not happen. You just, you just can't give yourself to this moment today. And that's why warriors burn a lot of rubber, but they go absolutely nowhere. I mean, warriors typically have tremendous energy, but all they do is spin in rubber, and they're never going anywhere. And then what happens, you develop a, a habit pattern where, where you're just living off of that adrenaline rush. Because when we talk about worry, we're talking about emotion. We're talking about energy. And that energy has to be released. Look at the second thing. Magnifying problems leads to excessive talking and depression. Warriors tend to be excessive talkers, and they struggle with depression. Now you say, Andy, I, I'm not an excessive talker. Oh, yes, you are. You may not talk to others, but you're talking to yourself. And I'm including that here. See, a warrior, their whole focus is on the problem. Their whole focus is on the circumstances. And all they, all they can do is focus on that. And as they focus on that, what happens? It's inevitable. The problem just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Now you got a mountain on top of you that's literally overwhelmed you, that's crushed you, and you don't see any way to get out from underneath its weight. And so that inevitably leads to what? Depression. Pity parties. Woe is me. Where is God? Why has God forsaken me? And then, look at the third thing. Failing to trust God leads to manipulation, deceit, and a murmuring spirit. In other words, because I'm, I'm not trusting God, now I have to rely on myself. My ingenuity, my ability to manipulate the circumstances, to manipulate people. And that can lead to deceit, you know, little white lies, embellishing here and there to try to get me through. And then, of course, a murmuring spirit. And if you want a great example of this, it would be the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea and in the wilderness. Because they failed to put their trust in God, they were constantly trying to manipulate the Lord, manipulate His leadership, Moses. 
They, were, they were, would constantly practice deceit. And of course, this murmuring, complaining, grumbling spirit. Which at the root of that is what? Let's, let's be honest now. You may, be, you may be complaining about circumstances. You may be complaining about another person, your spouse, or whatever it might be. But at the heart of that, whether you realize it or not, you're angry at God. You believe God has let you down. God hasn't met your expectations. He hasn't given you the outcome you want. And so at the root of all of this is just this anger this or, or, or disappointment with God. Disappointment with God. And then look at the consequences of worry. And this is according to Jesus. Probably the greatest statement in the entire Bible on worry and anxiety was given by Jesus in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 6, the latter part of that entire uh, chapter. And uh, he talks about the consequences of worry. And the first thing is, worry divides my allegiance to God. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. And most of us yank that verse out of its context But in the context, it's dealing with anxiety. It's dealing with worry. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, now listen, this is very important. And matter of fact, it's a very helpful bit of advice in terms of eventually coming to a place of victory. Jesus is saying, if you're struggling with anxiety or worry, it is a telltale sign. It is evidence of the fact that you're not trusting me alone. You have a divided allegiance. You may be trusting me but you've got some security blanket that you're holding on to and you don't want to let go of. You, you're trusting me and your spouse for joy or me and your employment for joy or whatever it might be. And so when this other thing becomes threatened, then you crumble in anxiety and worry. And so Jesus said, recognize the fact, if you struggle with anxiety, if you struggle with worry, it is an evidence that you have a divided heart, that you're not totally surrendered and committed in trusting me alone. Look at the second one. Worry keeps me from enjoying what I have. Jesus is not life more than food in the body than clothing. In other words, I'm so focused on what I don't have, what I believe I need. See, I can't enjoy what God's provided. I miss the wonderful blessings. That's why it, it literally kills that heart of gratitude which leads to that murmuring, grumbling spirit we talked about a moment ago. And then look at the third thing. Worry makes me forget my worth. Jesus, are you not worth much more than they? Referring to the birds of the air. And this is one of the most devastating consequences of worry. See, you lose sight of God's love. You lose sight of the fact of how much He values you, how much He cares for you. You forget the truth that Jesus taught. That, hey, if he loves and cares for the forgotten sparrow, the sparrow that has no value in the eyes of men, and that little sparrow can't even light on the ground apart from the Father's knowledge and care, how much more do you think he cares for those that have been redeemed by the blood of his Son? But a warrior totally loses sight of God's love, totally loses sight of God's care, how much God values them. Look at the fourth thing. Worry is completely useless. Verse 27, can any of you, however much he worries, make himself even a few inches taller? Worry never accomplishes anything good. Never really resolves any problem. 
Number five, worry weakens my faith. Verse 30, oh, men of little faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then number six, and don't miss this, worry is characteristic of the heathen, Jesus said, of unbelievers. He says, why be like the heathen? For they take pride in all these things and are deeply concerned about them. See, when, when, when I worry, now, now folks, let, let, me, let me, true confession right here. Uh, I know many of you that struggle with worry and anxiety. I'm hitting home right now. And I just want to let you know the reason I'm hitting home, because I've been there. I've experienced all of this. You know, again, I know what I'm talking about experientially in this struggle with worry and anxiety. So your pastor is with you in this struggle. And I haven't arrived yet, although I believe God is teaching me. And God is growing me, and I trust God will, is teaching and growing you. And I, I pray He'll use this message to take you even further uh, along, this, along this journey. But we need to see worry from God's perspective. When I, His child, when I succumb to worry and anxiety, what God is hearing me say, what God is hearing me say is this. Now, I may not be consciously thinking this out, but this is what's going on. You know, God, I know you had good intentions in what you wrote in your word. I, knew you, I know you meant well by it. I just don't believe you can pull it off. That's exactly what we're saying. Now listen to me. There is no other sin like worry or anxiety that calls into question the character and the integrity of God. That's why worry is not a weakness. It is a sin. It is a sin against a holy God who never lies, who's always true to His Word. A God of perfect, absolute, integrity that never changes. It can always be counted upon. But when I worry, I'm calling that into question. A Christian who worries is, again, speaking at, with a forked tongue. Yeah, I trust God. Yeah, I love God. But then when you succumb to worry, you're saying, no, I don't think you can pull up. Okay, now the antidote for worry. And I, I want to keep this immensely simple. And we'll probably have to pick up next week and uh, go into a little more detail, but I, w- I want to get you through the complete outline, and, um, and then we have a Lord's Supper service next week, and we can continue to emphasize this. Look at uh, the rest of the, that passage. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, here's the secret, here's what Paul learned, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God, and what will be the result? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Look at those four truths. Here's Paul's secret on conquering worry. Here's the antidote. Number one, meditate on God, not the problem. Meditate on God, not the problem. You need to understand all worry is, is meditating on your problem. Focusing on the problem. Paul says, don't meditate on your problem. 
turn to God. Meditate. And that, that is why God holds you responsible for your thoughts and your attitudes. He holds you responsible for what you dwell on. Again, you know, we're related to thoughts. I think it was Luther that said, I may not can stop the birds from flying over my head, but I can sure stop them from building a nest in my hair. So yes, I'm going to be tempted with anxious thoughts. I'm going to be tempted by worry. I'm going to be tempted by fear. The, the sin is not that I'm tempted. How do I respond at that moment? Do I choose to dwell on the problem? meditate on the problem, magnify the problem so it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and I become overwhelmed like we talked about before, I become crushed? Or do I turn from the circumstances? Do I turn from, and I begin to meditate on God. I begin to meditate on His character. Now, wait a minute. Yes, these circumstances may be difficult, but God is good and He's too good to do anything cruel to His child and God's too wise to make a mistake. But I also have to acknowledge he's too infinite to often explain himself to this puny, finite mind. So although I may not can tra- trust, trace God's hand right now, I'm, I'm going to choose to trust his heart. And I'm going to put my focus on God. And we're going to actually talk much, much more about that as we look at uh, uh, verse 8, where he talks about thinking on those things which are pure and uh, So I'll be able to amplify that much uh, further at that point. Number two, and here's a key point. I have to surrender the problem to God in prayer. Now we need to talk about this. We need to surrender the problem to God in prayer. And I need to surrender the problem to God in prayer in light of what we've learned about surrender in the book of Philippians. And what have we learned about surrender to Christ in the book of Philippians? True surrender is not looking for a particular outcome in my adversity, my problems or circumstances, but it's surrendering the problem, surrendering the circumstances to be an opportunity for what Christ to be exalted. I surrender my relationships to God. Not to get what I want, but I see that individual as God's gift to me. To teach me how to love is Christ's love. Chapter 3, I... I surrender my life to God in the sense that I see every decision as an opportunity to grow closer to Christ. And then chapter 4, to lean on Him in all of the challenges in life. So, I have to meditate on God, not the problem. And then as I meditate, I'm sorry. Then as I meditate on God, I have to surrender the problem to God in prayer. Again, not looking for a particular outcome, but trusting God to accomplish His purposes. Really believe in Romans 8, uh, 28. And God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His promise. And then the third point. And here's the thing that Paul really emphasizes in these two verses. Trust God through thanksgiving. And he says, when you go to God in prayer, when you surrender the problem we've got to God in prayer, don't go in doubt. No, go in thanksgiving. Again, focusing on God, who He is. What He's committed to do for you and in you and through you. And it's that thanksgiving that Paul says is a demonstration that I'm truly putting my trust in God. And then notice the fourth thing. What will be the result? God's peace will guard your heart and mind as you wait for God's answer. In other words, if I truly turn from the problem and to meditate on God, if I surrender the problem to God, not looking for the outcome I want, 
but entrusting my circumstances to God to use them to exalt Christ, to take me into a deeper relationship with Christ, to teach me to learn how to lean on Christ, and I go to Him with thanksgiving, knowing that He will be faithful, not in doubt, but in thanksgiving, God says, I give you a promise. My peace will guard your heart and mine as you wait for, God, wait for God's answer. And notice, this is again very important. Notice the promise he gives. It's not to give you a particular outcome. But to give you what? Peace. Regardless of the outcome. Like Paul said in chapter 1. You know, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. That was his expectation, that Christ would be magnified in his life, whether by life or by death. And folks, notice, there's no peace without what? Surrender. There's never peace without surrender. And we must surrender to God. And then look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7 from the message. I've always loved how the message puts this, how it paraphrases this. It says, don't fret or worry, instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises, praises shape your prayer, worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. You say, Andy, I, I look at that and that just seems too simple. It is simple. My question to you is, can you say that you practice that? That's my challenge to you. See, I believe God's Word. I believe if you will practice this, because I've experienced this in my own life, the problem hits, the circumstances hit, turn from the problem to God. Begin to meditate on God. And then surrender the problem, surrender the circumstances to God. Not begging God for a particular outcome, but leaving the outcome to Him. Knowing that He's all wise, He's all loving, He's totally committed to my good and what's best for me and for His glory. And then thank Him, thank Him, thank Him. Just thank Him, praise Him. And then you will experience God's promise. That peace settling you down. As Christ displaces the worry in your life and accomplishes his purposes. Father, thank you for the simple but powerful truth of uh, today's message. And Lord, uh, help us to see that this is, this is a message to be practiced. Um, that as we've talked about through this entire study of Philippians, that Growth is a reciprocal process. You have given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. You are that power that's at work in our lives. You're committed to providing that supernatural peace that surpasses all comprehension. Let yet, Lord, you want us to put our trust in you. As a child, we put his trust in his Father. So give us grace to put into practice what we've learned today. Not to meditate on our problems, but to meditate on you. To surrender our circumstances to you. Not seeking a particular outcome, but really 
trusting you to accomplish your purposes and resting in that with thanksgiving as we trust you. And then we trust that we will know your peace, your beautiful, beautiful peace settling us down. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. As we extend the invitation today, a very appropriate invitation hymn, uh, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus. And uh, so I, I would just encourage you to let this song be your response to God, that you would sing it with authenticity, with sincerity, uh, saying, God, I, I, I want to turn right now my eyes off my problem and turn them to you and to trust you to give me peace and to accomplish your purpose. Now, I'll be standing at the front to greet anyone that have a, a, a decision of any public nature, want to unite with the church. We would love to have you be a part of the Edgewood family. And so you please come forward so we can begin the process to full membership and give our people an opportunity to see you and uh, greet you and uh, welcome you. If you've made a, a recent profession of faith in Jesus, you can make that known uh, now by a coming down the aisle and uh, expressing that to me. But again, my challenge is, let's let this song be our response to God's truth today. So please stand as we sing it.